Hello and welcome to the menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink program. I am Marcus Hippi. In the next 30 minutes, we head to Italy's South Tyrol for the Suma Wine Fair. And I think Daum is one of the best places uh, in Portugal to make wines to age very well. Amazing granitic soils and uh, just very, very good. Cheers! Then cookbook author Sue Scott on her latest release, Rice Table. In the end, it's the human stories that brings the connection. And I think whilst the book is about Korean food, what I talk about is relatable to anyone who straddles two cultures. We're also in Washington DC to hear from one think tank about what the future of food may look like. All that here on the menu on Monocle Radio. First up today, we venture to the Italian Alps to stop in at Summa, an alternative wine fair that has grown in stature in recent years, as winemakers look to smaller, more intimate gatherings to meet new clients. Held on the same weekend as the big annual Vin Italy Wine Fair in Verona, Summa is held in South Tyrol and brings together like-minded producers from Italy and abroad who practice organic viticulture. Monocles, Ivan Cavani. Reports. Springtime in Italy sees wine producers busy selling their latest releases. While thousands congregate at Vinitali in Verona, inside a conventional fairground, discerning winemakers head north to Italy's South Tyrol region to attend Suma. Now in its 24th year, Suma hosts 100 producers in a quaint village, home to family winemaker Legather, in business for 200 years. Elena Legather is head of marketing at her family's winery. So Suma is a, I wouldn't call it even a wine fair. It's a, a wine event where we invite um, hundred, around 100 different producers from all over the world uh, to join us here in Magra. Magra is a tiny, tiny village and we're here in the middle of uh, beautiful, ancient, let's say, buildings from the 13th century, the 15th century. Suma means uh, sum in Latin and means the sum of us, of us uh, producers here coming together with, uh, I think, which are very like-minded producers. Many of them work in an organic way, biodynamic way. Elena's father, Alwa Legather, came up with the idea for the niche wine event to gather producers from Italy and abroad who believed, as he did, in organic viticulture. One winery that made the journey to Suma was Neoport from Portugal. Winemaker Daniel Neoport poured for me a field blend of white grapes from the Down region. So I'm here at Suma and I brought uh, white wine from uh, the Down region, from Quinta de Lomba. Uh, it's called uh, Quinta de Lomba White. And uh, I choose this wine because I believe very much in the region and I think Down is one of the best place uh, in Portugal to make wines to age very well. Amazing granitic soils and uh, just very, very good. Cheers. And now, Daniel, in the uh, the cellar, what, what kind of work are you doing? Is it more about in the vineyard, the work, and then in the cellar, minimal intervention? Well, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blend in between working with our own vineyards in the vineyards, but also with old guys with old vineyards and uh, blend this kind of together 
and uh, respect the place. And in the cellar, it's really just uh, doing wine in the philosophy of less is more. Next up was accomplished Sicilian winemaker Arianna Occhipinti, known for her reds made from frappato and erodavola grapes. At Suma, she poured me a light-bodied, dry white wine made from the grillo grape she planted in the vicinity of Vittoria in Sicily. So today we are going to pour um, a white. Uh, the name is SM, that's uh, Santa Margherita, the name of the Contrada, where this wine is made. And it's a grillo, uh, 100%. From Chiara Monte Gulfi, so in the mountains in front of Vittoria, 500 meters above the sea, planted next to a forest with a very nice vegetation typical of this kind of mountains. Uh, I decided to put, uh, to put Grillo, to plant Grillo some years ago because in that place at uh, this altitude, I was thinking other. Other grapes were showing only the minerality and not also the sense of the structure and the connection of, uh, of the grillo with the, with, the, with the limestone and with the, with the sea. And this grape is able to extract from the soil all the salinity and the sense of the salt that I really like, love, love in the wine. Then it was the turn of German producer Rebholtz. On its 400-year-old estate, the family makes Rieslings with great aging potential. Owner, Valentin Rebholz. So, uh, this is the 2017 Kastanienbusch, uh, our most important uh, Riesling site, uh, one of the most famous Riesling sites in the south part of the Pfalz. And it's uh, uh, with a quite uh, unique soil. So in the whole Pfalz region you find only this vineyard site with this soil. It's a dark red volcanic soil. And you have this aromatic in the glass. So um, a red color in soil uh, means high iron content. So it's a lot of iron oxide in the soil. And this brings this typical spiciness and this uh, herbalness in the wine. And with age, also the fruit opens up again. And um, after five or ten years, you find also some uh, a little bit fine exotic fruit, but never too... not. A sweet fruit, it's um, spicy and a nice acidity. My last stop was back in Italy, at the booth of Villa Venti, a winery doing Sangiovese in the Romagna region. Villa Venti owner, Beatrice Giardini. Okay, so I'm pouring Primo Segno, which is uh, our main uh, product for uh, Villa Venti. Primo Segno is... 100% of Sangiovese and Sangiovese grape is like the prince of, uh, of Romagna, is one of the most famous grape that we have in our area. And uh, through this wine, we try to express uh, the place where we come from. Our idea is that uh, when someone drinks a glass of our wine, it has to drink uh, our area, the place where we come from. And we want to tell our story thanks to these, uh, these grapes. And now, this Sangiovese, compared to what some people maybe know about Tuscan Sangiovese, how is this different? Well, for sure, the main difference is the soil. 
that is not uh, as high and as old uh, as we found in uh, in Tuscany. Like in Tuscany, we have hills that are more than 500 meters above the sea level. We are 150 meters above the sea level. This is the main difference. So they play more in Tuscany. They play more on austerity and uh, with these important wines. We uh, try to play more on fruit, fresh, minerality. Suma's small footprint and idyllic location allow winemakers more face time with importers in a setting that is relaxed and where producers themselves can sample wines from colleagues to discuss best practices in organic farming. It's no surprise, then, that the waiting list to exhibit at Suma is long. For Monaco in South Tyrol, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Thanks to Ivan for the report. Daniel Nirenberg is the co-founder of Food Tank, a U.S. non-profit organization that is essentially a think tank about all things food, agriculture and where we source it from. Daniel spoke at a summit in Washington, D.C. earlier this month called Aim for Climate about the innovations happening in agriculture around the world. Monaco's Chris Jermak spoke with Daniel about her work and she began by describing the particular restaurant where they were doing the interview. We're at Farmers and Distillers here in Washington, D.C. around the Aim for Climate Summit and we'll be launching the Forum for Farmers and Food Security later this evening with a great group of experts, ministers of agriculture from places like Honduras, uh, Zatuni Old, who's the deputy director at the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, and a bunch of other great folks who are experts around food and agriculture and really the solutions and where we need to go to really build climate resilience. And so I wanted to ask a little about you and Food Tank. Where did the idea come from? Why did you feel there was a need for a think tank about food? We have chefs, we have recipes, books, so many things out there about food. Why did you feel there was this gap, if you will? Yeah, we really felt like there was a lack of of stories about what was working on the ground. My co-founder Bernard Pollock and I had spent about 18 months on the ground in in sub-Saharan Africa, traveling the entire continent. We had a a grant to study agricultural innovation very broadly. And what we found were there were a lot of projects and initiatives that if they had a little bit more money behind them, a little bit more investments, a little bit more attention, they could be scaled up and out and replicated in different ways and really improve communities and, and livelihoods of farmers all over the world. What's your sense of how that is reaching consumers these days. Are they interested in those stories? Are consumers looking at changing their habits in order to reach impact the livelihoods of those farmers you speak about? I think it's very different than it was a decade ago when Food Tank first established itself. I think now you have this great energized new generation of consumers, eaters, citizen eaters, who want to know the story of where their food comes, how it was produced, who produced it, how animals and workers and the entire sort of food chain was treated. They want that story, they want that transparency, and they want that traceability. You're participating in this Aim for Climate Summit in a panel on food waste specifically. 
Why is that important? What do you see happening in that field? What can we do to stop wasting the extraordinary amounts of food that restaurants, consumers, everybody wastes right now? Absolutely. If food waste were a country, it would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions behind China and the United States. That, to me, is both a moral and environmental problem. We, you know, we've made so much progress over the last decade on building awareness around food loss and food waste. What we covered during our panel at Aim for Climate is how we need more data. We need more uh, of the statistics so that we have the things that we can measure to make change on. And so it's, it's a really exciting time, I think, in the food loss and food waste world for policies to be enacted that will help farmers and retailers and institutions of all kinds make the changes that they need to to prevent food loss and food waste and ensure that you know we we are not wasting this valuable resource that farmers have put a lot of love and labor into is it more about the production side and changing that and reaching out to the farmers and agriculture or is it about changing our habits in terms of what we eat what we look for when we go to the supermarket or go to a restaurant I think the two have to happen at the same time. We need more consumer awareness. We need more producers to have the ability to change practices. Many farmers, as you know, are locked in sort of a cycle of industrial farming or factory farming that they don't always want to be part of. And giving more investment to, to farmers who want to do more sustainable agriculture practices, who want to practice agroecology, who just want to do things a different way, I think is important. So you have that side and you need policy and political will to do that. And then you need more awareness among consumers who have a lot of onus placed on them. They get confused by labels around fair trade or organic, but they want more information about their food. And, and we have to be able to give them what they need to make better decisions. And what about the middlemen, as it were? The, we're, at, we're at a restaurant, founding farmers and distillers. What's the role of restaurants, supermarkets? Are, are you trying to reach them as well, work with them to, to, to look at where they source their, their food from? Absolutely, and I think chefs and retailers and restaurants have really been at the forefront of some of the changes that we've seen because they're, they want to source from farmers who are doing things a different way. They want to make that available to the public. So I, you know, I, I credit Dan Simons from Founding Farmers and his whole team for really, you know, making this restaurant and the others that he he is a co-founder in places where you can learn more about food and where it comes from in a really concrete way. And so they have to be a part of this equation. What's the biggest challenge in your mind? I mean, you, you painted in quite a positive light, to be fair, about sort of the stories that we're now telling, consumers changing their habits. What is the biggest challenge? What's, what's the biggest thing you feel you have to still communicate in, when it comes to how, how we change our, our habits and where we source our food from? It's such a good question. I mean, I think for me, my, my job is to be hopeful and optimistic. But what, what scares me, what keeps me up at night is the urgency we're facing around the climate crisis, around the biodiversity loss crisis, around our public health crisis. If we want to make change, we have to do it now. We can't wait till 2030 or 2050. The world will be on fire. We need to make these changes, these positive transformations in how we produce and consume food now. About Food Tank, one thing I noticed, you have a spring reading list. Tell, tell me what you hope to accomplish with that when you're, when you're putting out this reading list. It's not just environmental books, it's recipes, it's a lot of different things that you put into that. 
So Food Tank, you know, is, is kind of famous for our listicles, especially on our for our reading lists. And we put them out for every season and we highlight chefs and farmers and different food and innovators who have come out with exciting books where they, you know, folks can learn how to can or, you know, grow more vegetables in really small spaces, including on their own balconies. We just want to inspire people to take food personally because we all have to eat. It's something all 8 billion of us have to do every day. And we should take our food and agriculture systems personally. Daniel Nirenberg, co-founder of Food Tank, there in discussion with Monaco's Washington, D.C. correspondent, Chris Jermak. You are listening to The Menu on Monocle Radio. Funny how many people get these things wrong. I go into a lot of jazz clubs and I go, what made you build it like this? Everyone's got an opinion about design these days. Join us on a journey to cut through the noise as we sit down with some of the design greats. It's possible to really improve how we live and how we work through design. We also have you covered on everything from architecture to product design to fonts and fashion too. She has her own signature and creates beautiful and also comfortable clothes that women can really spend their days in. Make sure you tune in every Tuesday at 2000 London time for Monocle's weekly design show, Monocle on Design. Or find it wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to The Menu on Monocle Radio. I am Marcus Hippi. Up next, we continue with the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Liles. Earlier this week, the Intellectual Property Office of New Zealand ruled that the nation's Manuka beekeepers' attempt to win a trademark did not meet necessary requirements. The decision said that the term Manuka is descriptive as it refers to a white-flowered tree that grows in both New Zealand and Australia. The two countries have debated the use of the name for decades. However, New Zealand argues that it is an indigenous treasure unique to their country's honey production. In Ireland, a new law announced this week states that wine and spirits sold in the nation must display health labels indicating calories, alcohol by volume and consumption risks from 2026. However, this has been met by a sharp reaction in Italy, who say that the ruling is against European single market rules and generates baseless alarm amongst consumers. After failing to get the European Commission to block the law, Italy is teaming up with France, Spain and Portugal to stop it going through and will formally complain to the World Trade Organization at a meeting next month. And finally, a restaurant in Estonia has become the first in the country to be awarded with two Michelin stars. 180 Degrees by Matthias Dieter in Tallinn was given the honour in the recently released 2023 Michelin Guide to Estonia. The judges were impressed with the restaurant's intricate and sophisticated cookery and how their various elements blend skillfully together. This is just the second year that Michelin has given out its famed award to Estonian restaurants. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Marcus. Thanks, Monica. You are with The Menu. As a Korean woman living in London, food writer Sue Scott was faced with an identity crisis. Feeling neither Korean or British, Sue felt a duty to her unborn child to pass on the culture of her heritage. Her newest book, Rice Table, is a personal collection of recipes that reclaims her Korean roots through contemporary home cooking and traditions. Korean food has recently had a surge in popularity and is now ranked as the world's most popular cuisine. Monaco's Andre Nicola Paminchuan asked Sue why she thinks it has such a huge appeal to the global palate. 
I think actually the influence of K-pop and K-drama, K-beauty, all of those things has driven this um, Korean culture into people's lives in the small and big ways. And I think being able to see what it's really like, it kind of starting to give people some insights about the real flavours of Korean food, not just what has been known. And um, I think when they see the varieties, the rich and vibrant culture of Korean food, and table in itself is just so full of spread. And yeah, I think that's probably what um, made people be curious. Exactly, and in your your book Rice Table is such a you know a personal uh, book as well as a, a you know a personal take on Korean cuisine. Uh, could you tell us about writing the book and what was the inspiration behind it? So I gave birth to my daughter back in 2015. It was at the point of my UK life turning into I have stayed here for longer than I've stayed back home. And childbirth really throws you out anyway and makes you ask questions as a woman. It asks you questions as my identity as a woman, what I have done so far and where am I going and then there's the responsibility of trying to sustain this life and keep them safe and nourish them. It's all down to you. Throw into that the mixture of that cultural confusion. Am I Korean or am I British? You know, where do I stand in this cultural mixture of, you know, just very... It's, it's a personal thing. And for me, it felt like I had to dig deep and inquire where I come from in order to be able to tell that story to my child. You know, my daughter is half British and half Korean. So uh, giving her the Koreanness, I was the sole bearer. The fact that it was all down to me, it was quite frightening. And I think I felt the importance that I had to really dig deep and establish what it is that I cherish in my culture and I wanted to connect and food is such a tangible thing isn't it it's, it's an immediate thing that you can start exploring how has your identity as a British Korean influenced the way you view or even cook Korean cuisine now I think my kitchen is very mixture of melting pot my husband's British and I have lived here for now 22 almost 23 years now and um, for me I think we, uh, the kind of Korean food that we cook has got influence of many um, multicultural food that I have experienced in Britain. It's not just Korean food, but also the Korean food that I cook is very old fashioned in a way, but with a twist of modern touch that I have learned. So there is a lot of European influence in the way that I, rep I present the dish, but maybe the flavours might focus more on traditional food that I grew up in. You know, back in the 80s and 90s in Korea, the food was still very much of traditional, traditional food. And my mother's kitchen suddenly only um, focused on traditional flavors. Great. And, and I was uh, flipping through the pages and, and I attempted to make your uh, midnight kimchi. And 
in the book are also anecdotes, um, stories, and, 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 you know, the background of, of, of the recipes. And it was great to kind of read about how you try to access the, the flavors through, through the memory of your mom's uh, kimchi fried rice. So I was wondering, what are your favorite stories behind the recipes? I guess when I try to recall my memories to realize what makes me Korean, for me, the most accessible thing was food. And thinking about food and flavors and the dishes that I ate or my mother cooked for me, there's always this small details that surrounds that particular dish. It starts to unlock not just the food, not just the taste of the food, but more of the environment that you're in. Maybe you might even remember what you were doing or what you were talking about or the surroundings. And I guess for me, that became a most treasurable memory, you know, starting to realise the flavours, not only just the flavours, but the textures and the sound and the feel, you know, how my skin felt that time when I made that connection with that dish. I don't know, I kind of felt like the small things spoke so much more than the food itself. And what is it about Korean food that you feel people still don't know? Well, I feel like the food trend drives very um, positive energy into a specific cuisine that has been very trendy and people really want to get to know. But the ranges of the particular cuisine, especially in Korean, the range has been covered by um, people, has been quite limited. And I suppose I really wanted to highlight and champion the daily cooking that happens in ordinary home kitchens. Because for me, that's what sustained me. It wasn't the fried chicken or it wasn't the bulgogi. You know, they are great. There are absolutely amazing, delicious things, but you can't sustain your life just on that. And I really wanted to highlight just the daily cooking that your parents do every day to sustain you. There's so much love. There's so much simplicity. There's so much beauty in small things, ordinary cooking. So rice table in a way, showcases the diversity of uh, Korean cuisine beyond what people normally may access via YouTube or um, films that we see. Um, and, and most of these recipes, as you said, is... is is channeled through um, your your memories and something that you want to pass on to the next generation. Um, so what is it that you would like this book to contribute in, in the conversation around food? I would, I'd like to open a dialogue um, where people can connect to their very ordinary memories from childhood because I think food actually carries so much more than just the taste. Food in general, it carries so much stories about history and the current times and the culture. And I think in the end, it's the human stories that brings the connection. And I think whilst the book is about Korean food, what I talk about is relatable to anyone that who straddles um, two cultures or who has immigrated into this country. 
or who's going through the motherhood. Maybe it's a challenging motherhood. I don't know. I think there's a lot of connection to be made, and I would like the book to be in the middle of that conversation, opening up, asking your question, and brings people together. Sue Scott, the author of the new book Rice Table, there in discussion with Monaco's Andre Nikolai Paminshuan. And that's all for this edition of the Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at 1500 in Toronto. Also, remember our spin off show, Food Neighbourhoods, where we tour some of the world's tastiest destinations. And obviously, you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle Magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. This program was researched by Monica Lillis, and our studio manager was Kelly McLean. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Sue Lee with Messy Sexy. Thanks for listening and until next week.